This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Welcome to this week's episode of the Friday Morning Break with John Gibbs. My guest this week, Professor Eric Nylander from Linköping University in Sweden. We are discussing the role of arts in adult education and the fascinating world of the folk high schools. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org, or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. What were your school days like? Were they the best in your life? Were you glad to be rid of school? Did you burn your textbooks and move on? Was school the only place you'd ever been told to draw, to paint, to dance, to experiment with arts and crafts? Was all that left behind when you went into the world of work? Unless, of course, you're an art teacher. Or unless, of course, you're an artist. In Sweden, the folk high school movement offers artistic creativity and education for lifelong learners, often in settings of great rural beauty, and all of it completely free. Sometime in the early 1980s, I had a part-time job. I had several part-time jobs at the time. That was most interesting was working for the Working Man's College in Camden Town in London. This was founded in the late 19th century and was linked to the arts and crafts movement, William Morris and the Pre-Raphaelites, who, some of them, including Rossetti, taught art at the college. Today, it was delivering evening classes, mostly to adults. Life drawing, arts, but also maths, English, business studies, computing, and so on. Its original conception was that arts and arts education was liberating for working people and something that was vital to withstand the onslaught of industrialization and the grim slums and working lives of many people in the mid-19th century. When I was there, the wonderfully gothic library and the interiors were all intact, and pictures of the founders and past teachers on the walls, and photographs of people earnestly studying and writing and drawing and painting in the 1920s or just after the Second World War. A long history of adult education. That's the closest thing I can think of when I think of my discussion with my guest this week, Professor Eric Nylander. We talked about something I really had no knowledge of until I'd come across the research and work done by Eric on Swedish folk high schools. I discussed with Eric not only the folk school movement, the origin of its ideas, how it spread across Scandinavia and Germany, and why today it's still a flourishing part of Swedish education and something we could all learn from. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, publishing professional development books and resources 
to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world. Have you checked out their latest releases? Use the code JCTTR2324 for 20% off your order. Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. Bet UK is empowering the everyday wins. Cheeky grins. <laughs> Big conversations. Budding aspirations. Our goal? To make EdTech accessible and teaching exceptional. Join the global education community on the 24th to the 26th of January 2024 as we make education better together. Ticket off your Christmas list today. Get your free ticket before the 13th of December deadline. Visit www.uk.betshow.com forward slash visitor dash registration. And we're back and uh, you're joining us again on Teachers Talk Radio on this Friday morning. And uh, you can find this on the podcast. So however you're listening, this week, my guest, as I said in the introduction, is Eric Nylander. And uh, I came across you, Eric, when I was looking up. Well, I was came across you by accident, really. I was just looking for people of expert, expertise in education. And I saw some writing you did and your research area of folk schools. And um, as I was saying before we started recording, uh, I didn't know much about them. And then I know a little more now. And it sounds it sounds like a fascinating. So I'll start by asking you, can we define what folk schools are? And I know they exist differently across Scandinavia and Germany. Uh, so Eric, welcome to Teachers Talk Radio. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so... In Sweden, we call them folk high schools, but I think in general, it's it's difficult for us uh, educational researchers that uh, educational institutions, they are very, very much like uh, idiosyncratic in their names and in their histories. So it makes it a bit hard with the international comparisons. It's not like studying molecules or studying something which which is very clearly the same. They began in the 19th century, didn't they? And, they, and they're found in, I, I think there's a, well, I, I don't know if there's an equivalent in this country, but they began in the 19th century and then they're found in Germany, Sweden, Norway, Denmark, but if, if of a different kind. Yeah, so I think it, it's really hard when, when for an English-speaking audience, I think the reason why you say, say folk schools is that that's more common in the, English-speaking universe. I mean, in the U.S., you have, for example, the setup of Highlander Folk School in the 1930s, Tennessee, which was a super important school for the civil rights movement in the U.S. And that was based on inspiration from the Nordics, particularly Denmark, and the rural folk colleges that had already been established in in the Nordics. And and there you had, you know. Uh, you had civil rights uh, people like Martin Luther King and Rosa Rosa Parks attending or or teaching in Highlander folk schools, 
and I guess in the UK it, it's uh, it's a bit more tricky to find a comparison. But literally speaking, the translation of folk high school would be higher education for the folk, for the vernacular, for the for the masses. Uh, so you have some of that in the open university idea, for example. Uh, and and they were when they emerged, they were boarding schools, and I think that too is an inspiration from the UK. The boarding school format that is as much a residential purpose as an educational purpose, where you're living, uh, playing, and studying in the same place. All the kind of central activities of life is congregated in a cloistered environment, like a monastery. Or, well, it's or something that, like that's that. interesting. So, you so, should mention yeah. monastery because there's something what for what I've discovered. There's something about the the folk school that, which is an ad, it's an adult an adult form of education. So you go there after school, but there is something about taking yourself away from the real world. I mean, if the real world, or maybe to the, to the real world, but it's taking yourself away from the kind of hurly burly of city and work and industry out into the countryside. That's, a, that's quite an important facet of escaping that thing. Yeah, it's a, it's a form of voluntary total institution. So it's like, it's something you do by your own will, your own uh, effort, and it targets adults. So they are free to choose, right? But you can choose to go into this. Uh, I mean, historically speaking, it was only, I think, boarding schools, but uh, eventually they also opened up so you, you could study in the folk schools or folk high schools uh, only by day and then live, continuing to live of, uh, in, in your normal residential place. And in, in Denmark, Finland and Norway, I think there is around 70 folk schools uh, or folk high schools each, roughly speaking, and, and Denmark was the uh, original country at least according to their historians G German historians has another history writing so it's a bit contested but it was in the borders the zone between what is now Germany and Denmark where the first uh, folk schools were emerging and Grundtvig uh, uh, Danish theologian is often considered the kind of founding father of these schools. But in Sweden, we have we have more schools. We have 156 of these schools, and they offer both post-secondary education and art education and some vocational education. Uh, and they have actually kind of increased uh, gradually over the years. So, and of course, they had to change because they, as you said, they started in the mid. 19th century, and this is like the time when Sweden was quite primitive, a, a farming society and not very equal country. And they evolved as society evolved and, and changed, obviously, radically because the educational possibilities also changed with the development of the welfare the, state and the emergence of civil going society. Going back to this... So uh, character Grun character this chap this 19th century theologian and reformer Grundtvig. Uh, some of the listeners may have heard of Grundtvig through the Grundtvig programs and Grundtvig sponsorship that was connected to the EU. <clears throat> when we were in the EU, um, and certainly students and students and teachers in this country may have heard of the term Grundtvig. I didn't make the connection until I read this. Uh, he is um, 
he has a philosophy of education based upon arts and creativity and the outdoors and that that so what the, that's why he's considered sort of founding father as it were of of the folk colleges yeah so so i mean i'm not an expert of his philosophy i think danish historians would be better suited to explain but it's a school of the entire life was the idea and the living word so instead of having this latin you know fabricated language as the language of of schooling which was the case uh, of schools uh, at that time he turned to the vernacular language so danish uh, and in the case of swedish schools then it was swedish and he turned to his own history uh, writing of of denmark as important and the the living word uh, was important so the way it wasn't only the dead letters and dead books it was supposed to be something you know inspired something a kind of uh, uh, awoke the souls of, of, yes. of the pupils <laughs> so so but but he, he wasn't adverse to it having instrumental values but but he also incorporated you know uh, song and uh, aesthetic elements to this so it was both the spiritual that, and the physical that's so interesting because that, that i remember i remember many years ago i had a part-time job working at a college in london called the called the working man's college and it was founded it was in it's in still there today actually doing exactly pretty much what it used to do and it, the working man's college was part of a movement of working men's colleges and the working men's education movement but it started it was founded by christian socialists and artists the particularly the the, the, the pre-raphaelite kind of brotherhood and that all connect. and so people like rossetti would turn up of an evening and give art classes and the whole the whole structure was art and a little bit of change you know awakening the minds of the proletariat kind of thing you know there was a sense of that you say that you know uh it wasn't they weren't just teaching you how to be a plumber or they weren't going to teach you necessarily engineering it was definitely arts and crafts and sketching and the wonderful old pictures on the wall of people doing life drawing in the in the eighteen eighties and so on. So so there was a there's a missionary quality to the folk schools. And the Christian element to it is the awakening, you know, that's obviously transformed what kind of awakening you're supposed to cherish and work for as a teacher. It might have changed from from the Christian dimension, I mean, in the Swedish case, eventually the civil rights, uh, the social movements like the temperance movement, the pre-religious movement, the workers movement became important in, in kind of transforming it from a farmer school to something uh, to develop, you know, functionaries for civil society. So these schools were sort of taken over by the social movements and they had their own awakenings you know like the worker class struggles or or you know the temperance movements to abstain from alcohol and and to be like why did you what what led you to be this you work at a at a university in sweden and what led you to follow this research line uh so you thought you thought mm. what, what made you think yeah, this is a thing I, we need to look at <laughs> yeah, so I get asked that a lot, actually, and, and most people think that I have attended the folk high school myself and that I, I've done a lot of research on music in folk high schools. So people 
tend to believe I'm a musician uh, having studied that, but that's not really the case. It's more serendipitous and, and uh, random, I think, because when my, my topic, um, undergraduate topic, and, and when I studied myself in the university, then I did sociology. And then at, at that time, I read a lot of social theory and I fell in love with these books. But then at the end of this long journey, I wanted to do like a, a final thesis that was more kind of out looking out to the whatever people in the labor market wanted me to study. So then I went into this homepage where they pitched ideas on what to do, what to study. And there some some uh, teacher of a specific folk high school invited researchers to write the history of this folk high school. It's called Hula Folk High School, and it's perhaps forgotten today. But but then I went there to to their little school uh, uh, in the north of Sweden, and then in their uh, closed down library, I found a lot of uh, song books from their history so dating back to uh, to the late 19th century and onwards they had been singing songs together in the school up until the mid 20th century and through this song what the lyrics were and what they were singing about you could kind of trace the ideals and the norms and the values of what was cherished in the school and that became the entry point for me to be interested in the Folk High School and its history. And this particular school was also interesting because it was one of the first two uh, schools to open its gates for women and for kids of uh, working class backgrounds. So it was a very liberal uh, philosophy and that was very controversial because they were very early in opening the gates and housing both uh, women and men yeah, at yeah. the same boarding school. It was considered very, very controversial. Well, particularly the boarding the school element. I was trying to think about, I mean, the working man's college, the working man's education movement. I thought, well, that, that they're not boarding schools, most certainly. That's evening colleges. It's going there in the evening and so on. So this, this element of going off and staying mm. somewhere, the closest I could think about that was something of the of the 20th century youth hostel movement in this country so youth youth hosteling and, and very cheap ways of traveling to beautiful places and staying or or the or the scouts or something but but i mean in the it, yeah yeah but it, i mean in the in back in the days so i'd say like in the, in that time i don't think it was a national recruitment so it was very locally oriented so the reason why why they turned towards uh, sons and daughters of working men is because they were set up in this coastal region where you had forestry industry booming. So Sweden didn't industrialize as fast as the UK, but then the school was set up very close to the this like industrialization happening. And so it targeted the local population mainly. And, and also it was it was like this particular school, because it opened its gates to women and men staying in the boarding school, they, uh, their state funding was withdrawn for three years because it was considered like uh, a dangerous uh, activity. So they, so they were sort of considered radic radicals. So there's a lot of uh, 
men mm. and women going off oh. into the countryside together to 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 stay and study mm. was the was the curriculum considered radical as well i mean taking working class people and saying right um there was i mean there was a sense of that with workers education that you you know to teach them to do things but you don't what what's the point of taking people who come out of a factory in the evening and then sketch or write or sing mm. what's the point of that kind of thing so there was a sense in which that that yeah. that doesn't that linger that lingers a bit today when a school says we're going to cancel the choir and we're going to cancel the art classes because we need to concentrate on the laboratory or the science i mean there's always a tension there between you know the utility of education and yeah. and and yeah no yeah so i i think you wouldn't i mean also going back to these songs i i was uh, hoping for the songs to kind of have some kind of political dimensions to it i remember but then they were all about you know nature and about you know general kind of <laughs> whimsy things not about like working struggles or anything like that and i think the curriculum also don't really appear to be very uh you know uh, socially engaged they studied like uh, the laws governing the municipality and uh, you know like communal um, but they studied geography they studied of course swedish and 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 history but i think some of it could have been radical to study the the parliamentary uh, the, the the laws for who is elected to local uh, parliaments and to national parliaments in this time. So mid and late 19th century, Sweden was not a democracy. The right to vote for local assemblies were uh, decided by how much you earned and your income. So therefore just lecturing about these topics could in itself have been a quite radical move because that then showed that is this the way we wanted to have yes you know, is this so that's that strand of order? socialism uh of the left who are going you know that that belief that uh if you if you can show working people the realities <laughs> you can form a they can form their own political parties mm. they can form their own unions they can they can learn the nature of the world they live in and be as you said earlier the word is awakened awakened for a very a very sort of yeah like uh, the scales falling you from your eyes kind of see and seeing the who's in power and who isn't in power and the realities of that but i think that in the swedish case the the labor movement was very late to the parties so of say it was liberals and it was temperance movements the yeah, free religious movements yeah. that was that was setting the ground infrastructure for what what was to come so obviously the workers movement came very strong in sweden but there was a later development and the... you're listening to the friday morning break with john gibbs on teachers talk radio my guest this week professor eric nylander of linkoping university in sweden we are discussing the swedish folk high schools and the importance the arts in education. Talking, going, concentrating on the, the folk element, the, the, you know, the Swedish songs, the, the traditions, the kind of the skills that might be lost. I mean, that's always 
again, you'll hear in the news or something in education, we, we, we're losing this particular old skill or we're losing these particular folk tales or we're losing these particular recipes or something. That, that sense in which in order, to, in order to build a nation, in order to build a sense of us, you have to hang on to what we were. And that, that might get lost in all this hurly-burly of national of, of, um, of factories and industrialization. So, and, and especially if your history is trying to define yourself as not being Danish or not being Swedish, if you're Norwegian, mm. and uh, trying to carve out a sense of yourself. So was there a nation-building, national nationalist element to this? Yeah, definitely. A fostering of, of responsibilities and uh cultivating people i mean given that you also had these gradual uh, steps towards a full-fledged democracy i mean people got gradually more opportunities to vote even farmers uh, and uh, uh, got the right to to vote for local assemblies and and then of course that had to be matched with more opportunities than only six years of obligatory schooling. And this was obviously also farmers moving on to gain more rights and more political power gradually. Uh, and the, the folk school was very much their way to extend their educational possibilities beyond six years uh, of obligatory schooling which is not no, much no um, no uh, that, that idea that you're sort of finished your education is done at six at 16 or 18 yeah. and you're out there that's it you've you've learned that or and people were often you know that, yeah. that sense in which people describe themselves as not very good at school or i didn't I, something i remember from school as if that was a piece of their life done with and finished so so lifelong learning is a is a is an objective mm. Just in itself, I mean, you know, it makes it makes complete sense. That mm. when, when... And also, I mean, it's also weird for us today to think of Latin as the language of schools, right? So that is also something they were early in saying, okay, well, why turn to this dead language when you can use your own uh, language, just as, as they did with the Bible in, in using their the right language for it to be interpreted by. Yes, that's interesting. And, and just as the Bible was being translated into the sort of languages of Europe, English, French, German, and so forth, it was a form, it was a period of the formation of nation states. The project, the folk project, with all of its emphasis on, mm. on the craft culture of a particular nation and that particular nation's own language, was also a nationalistic project. Uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, it is very It's a national nationalist pro project, the folk high schools to a large extent. I think, particularly in Denmark, because they had this very contested history with, with what what would become Germany. So, the, if you read the Grundtvig, you would find really clear uh, elements of uh, national romantic. Uh, elements to it uh, almost like proto-fascist type of thinking uh, uh, but i i don't know if the swedish folk high schools i think there are schools which are kind of similar to that but uh, or were <laughs> not now but uh, back then uh, but but i think the historians in sweden tend to conceive them 
as slightly more pragmatic and enlightenment oriented than the than the Danish counterparts. Maybe also these civil social movements uh, shaped the folk high school into becoming become something something else. I mean, Grundtvig has a very important part in Danish um, historiography. Do you say that? Like the history writing of of Denmark as a state to when um, when they became independent, so to say, and created their own. Yeah. So, so one of the important for the for the Danish folk school, mm -hmm. Grundtvig and so on. There's an agenda which is making sure we're not German, as it were. <laughs> so, so there's a sense of defining that bo that border is going to change and shift, and there's always a sense in which. Denmark is 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 vulnerable to to Germany, not just in mm. political in, in military terms, but in the sense of just being absorbed into it. How how I don't know if you how does how do the folk schools in in Germany differ? Yeah, so so there is German historians uh, are emphasizing more the Enlightenment uh, origin from Kant and onwards to the folk high school. So they don't emphasize the the proto-fascist. Uh, element to it very much and, and they conceive of the, their first uh, folk school was like also in Schleswig-Holstein so this same border region between Denmark and Germany uh, um, but they they tend to see it more as a cultivation of citizens um, not the glorification of farmers which was uh, <laughs> yeah, so it's so not a romantic. It's not a romanticization of the kind of the honest toiling folk of the farm. It's mm. no, it's, I it's, mean, but also you you have to read and the different uh, histories coming from different countries, and often the way you write history is shaped by the way you know what has happened at the later stage. So uh, there is. Uh, I think reason to emphasize that Sweden has not been a welfare state for very long. Uh, and uh, the way the farmers approached these schools were also very uh, oriented towards increasing productivity in the farming household and in the small scale farming that was going on before farming became fully rationalized. So the cultivation of, of vocational skills was also inherent to the curricula of, of the early so, so there's a straight sort of rural pragmatism you know let's mm. let's learn about hus good husbandry yeah. farming proper properly sharing sharing good things and so on when when farming is enormously important to to the economy exactly and uh, and you want to do it you want to do it well so you're going to learn. You're going, there's going to be a didactic quality. Well, obviously, a didactic quality. I was thinking actually, there's, there's a, a long-running soap radio. It might, be, it might be the longest-running soap drama in the world on British radio called The Archers, and it uh, it goes out. It's been going out since the 90, early 1950s, and it still runs twice a week today. When it first started, this drama was all about. So it was it setting rural rural England farming folk. And they would often in the shows say things like, well, have you discovered the latest milking method? And, uh, and have you seen this new development in grain something or other? Mm -hmm. And it, 
you know, it was it was actually started as a BBC project to 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 teach farmers better farming. Mm. <laughs> so you know, I don't know why that jumped into my mind. But I was thinking as you <laughs> no. said that that. That, no, but, it, but it's, it's funny because it's a lot of these things that they were teaching back in the day had to do with the natural sciences and with economy, you know, bookkeeping, uh, these kinds of hard, <laughs> what we consider of as hard sciences today. Yes. And that, that surprises many of the current teachers uh, of the folk schools because they eventually after the 1960s and onwards became more oriented towards social science and the arts and um, and a lot of art courses has come about so then when they discovered that it was about you know these kind of um, biology or uh, statistics and maths and bookkeeping that that's kind of surprises them why this show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, publishing professional development books and resources to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world. Have you checked out their latest releases? Use the code JCTTR2324 for 20% off your order. Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. Bet UK is empowering the everyday wins. Cheeky grins. <laughs> big conversations. Budding aspirations. Our goal? To make edtech accessible and teaching exceptional. Join the global education community on the 24th to the 26th of January 2024 as we make education better together. Ticket off your Christmas list today. Get your free ticket before the 13th of December deadline. Visit www.uk.betshow.com forward slash visitor dash registration. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. The Guardian features comment on a parliamentary report which is calling for an overhaul of secondary education in England. The House of Lords report says the education system for 11 to 16 year olds is too focused on academic learning and written exams. The report also calls for the English Baccalaureate, or EBAC, introduced by Michael Gove during his tenure as Education Secretary, to be scrapped as a school performance measure. The government ambition for 90% of Year 10 pupils to be entered for EBAC subjects by 2025 is criticised for being too limiting and not allowing pupils to study a range of subjects. Criticism is also levelled at the overburdened curriculum as a result of content and the 25 to 30 hours of examinations at the end of Year 11. The report echoes some concerns expressed by some teachers and school leaders. Recommendations include allowing schools to offer a more varied range of learning experiences, more opportunities to study creative, vocational and technical subjects, 
and that pupils should have the option to take functional literacy and numeracy qualifications that are equal in value to GCSEs in English and Maths. Former Education Minister under the Conservatives, Joe Johnson, says the evidence received was compelling and that change was urgently needed. Former Education Secretary Kenneth Baker said dropping the EVAC would give schools greater freedom. Unions welcomed the calls but said school funding, recruitment and retention and cutting workload were essential to making any changes a possibility. A Department for Education spokesperson said, We are constantly seeing the success of our reforms, citing recently released PISA rankings and being named best in the West for primary reading out of a comparable 43 countries. The Observer focuses on Scottish schools dropping the PISA ratings and featured an opinion piece by Sonia Soda. The piece lays blame squarely on the curriculum reform which began under the SNP in 2010. It changed the focus from knowledge emphasising the development of transferable skills. The approach is linked to the idea of preparing children with skills they need for jobs that don't exist yet. But the article says this is a theory based on zero evidence. The article goes on to make links to other countries which made similar changes and saw similar declines, including Sweden and France. It also focuses on the impact such a curriculum has on disadvantaged pupils, increasing, it says, the gap between the non-disadvantaged peers. As the House of Lords report levels criticism at a so-called traditional system in England, it seems that Scotland's more progressive approach is being seen in a similarly negative light. The BBC World Service features a piece on universities in Hong Kong. Once attracting talent from around the world, now academics via Beijing is restricting academic freedom. In 2021 to 22, more than 360 scholars left eight public universities. The turnover rate, 7.4%, is at its highest since 1997, when Hong Kong returned to Chinese rule. Foreign student enrolments have dropped by 13% since 2019. Security guards are now a common sight in universities, ensuring that students and visitors must identify themselves. At the Chinese University of Hong Kong, the democracy wall has been stripped bare and a statue of the goddess of democracy is gone. The 2020 national security law targets subversive behaviour and has seen libraries emptied of books of bad ideologies and a ban on protests. Job applications for professors have dried up and fewer students are enrolling for PhDs in humanities and social sciences. Some academics say that even being an expert on China is a risk these days. Further details on this story can be found on the BBC News website. Pupils in Liverpool got a Shakespeare masterclass from Rafe Fiennes, which they described as weird but outstanding. The Harry Potter actor is starring in Macbeth at Liverpool's The Depot, but was supporting the Friends with Shakespeare event in a local school. The workshop included warm-up games, group work and language analysis. The star also focused on the theme of ambition in Macbeth and linked it to future plans and careers for students. Finally, GCHQ has released its annual brain teaser for UK school children. Its code-breaking challenge is aimed at 11 to 18-year-olds. More than 1,000 secondary schools signed up for this year's event, according to the BBC Breakfast programme. It is the third edition of the challenge 
and it is designed to test code breaking, maths and analysis skills, with each test designed to be harder than the last. There are seven tasks in total and children are encouraged to tackle them in teams, as solving puzzles needs a mix of minds. The full challenge can be found on the GCHQ website, just in case you want to test your own skills. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. You're listening to the Friday Morning Break on Teachers Talk Radio with John Gibbs. My guest this week, Professor Eric Nylander of Linköping University in Sweden. We're discussing the Swedish and indeed Scandinavian Folks High Schools. Eric, one of the things I was wondering is, we've talked generally about the founding of the Folks High Schools, but if I were in Sweden today, what would I study and how would I go about studying at a Folks High School? <laughs> so so that's a very good question because it, it, it's really hard for them to make a pitch on what what they're for because they do so many different things nowadays. So after you had this tremendous expansion of education, you know, uh, secondary education, upper secondary education, you had higher education, you had second chance education in other forms. So then these folk high schools had to change and they morphed and changed into various functions. So they still today has this um, broad uh, plethora of different uh, kind of subjects and, and programs, but they are more internally differentiated among. So you would either, uh, either you, maybe you didn't get the chance to finish your upper secondary school. You were struggling a bit with the forms that upper secondary school was taught and you have a second chance to enter uh, higher education through attaining folk high school. So that's one like compensatory form of, of folk high school training that is quite important. And you also have the uh, Swedish for immigrants being important. So you have a lot of migration coming to Sweden and then these people have to learn Swedish and they have to uh, both validate and and learn new things in order to have something corresponding to uh, upper secondary school certificates. So that's one part of it. But then the other side of it is more specialized courses. So you also have uh, a tremendous growth in uh, programs in the arts, in aesthetic realm, in music, theater, craft, textile, you name it. Um, and that goes back all the way to what we talked about before. Uh, but now it's been singled out more as a profile or area of expertise. Uh, once upon a time, the curriculum was holding together holistically, but now the aesthetical dimension of it is more taught as a specialty. So if I, if I was a, I should, I should mention, I think I'm right in saying that also the folk schools are free. There's not, yeah, a, there's yeah, not the, a, there's, there's no, there's no fee you have to pay. If I want to do an evening class at my local college in Northampton uh, on in pottery mm -hmm. or language learning, it's going to cost me X amount of money, you know, quite a lot, really. Um, not, not, not unaffordable that, but this, these are free. So if yeah. I apply to do this mm. uh, and I say, well, I'd like to do a course in, 
I'm, I'm very interested in, in, in developing my skills in this area. It'll be a, a two-week course, a three-week course. Or no, an no, no, no. Or... Full term. You you would do a full term or a year, or you could even do two years, uh, and it would me. be tuition free. But you could do. Uh, there could be fees involved if you want to live in these boarding schools, which is still, uh, you know, placed around Sweden in a very decentralized way because it was a farmer school from the start they were set up in pretty you know scarcely populated place and 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 you you could have to pay money to to pay for the housing and and the food uh, which is often provided by the four high schools but you you were able to live there for a year study craft or photography or or whatever you find interesting I've got to say, it sounds absolutely wonderful. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I think if I were, if I were now in Sweden, you know, oh. I'd, I'd be going on the website and looking up. You know, I want I want to go into some very beautiful, desolate sort of area <laughs> and study. Well, I'll, I'll, what, what all the all the things I wish I'd studied and never did. Yeah, you know, that's that's what I that's what I do right now. Yeah. Uh, so the and the only obstacle I'd face would be how would how would I live? So they they might charge me for the food. Mm. Or I'd have to find some accommodation of my own, but I could. So, how many people? How many people take it as a sort of gap year in their life, as it were? You know, students oh, take this gap yeah, year. that's quite. Say, so, well, I'll just take a bit of time out of life. Yeah, yeah. No, so that that's very uh, often the case uh, for for those who have already sort of done their upper secondary school. They might they might not know after upper secondary. So you're what eighteen years old. Uh, it's a quite uh, important decision what to study in the university. Uh, so they might take one year as a gap year instead of traveling to Thailand and do a full moon party. You do devote yourself to something that you're truly passionate about, but you, you m- might not know <clears throat> whether it's sort of what role it would have in your life or how you know how much should i devote myself to music or uh, and while you're doing that you then you, you have the time uh, to contemplate about what to study if you want to go down the uh, that route or some other route and um, another thing that is increasingly popular i think is that uh, within these aesthetic courses, there is more and more people of uh, so lifelong learners. So people in your age or my age that goes back into school. So that could be people being burned out from their work. So they uh, are on a sick leave or uh, somehow they want to downshift uh, and kind of reduce the tempo of the hectic contemporary life. So they they go and use the folk high schools also to a way to kind of mitigate or kind of counter uh, could be problems that they faced in the labor market, but mm-hmm. it can also be a way to kind of slow things down and look for meaning the, through the arts or uh, something. Is like there that. is there a, a kind of wellness quality? I mean, would I would if I went to a folk Thing, would there be discussion groups that would say, "Well, why are you here, John?" and so on, and mm. and I might I might share my experiences. So if if I were escaping the hurly hurly burly, mm. would I would I feel there was a um, th- there's a, a kind of 
I don't want to characterize it as new age, but a, se a sense of of um, of therapy mm. about the, the, the folk school. Or is, it, or is it still very much, you know, you're here to learn this, explore this this particular area? Yeah, so I, I think... Because I'm going, I'm sorry, I'm going back to the idea of the monastery that you mentioned at the beginning, this kind of, you know, let's go, go there and, and yeah. be healthy. Exactly. Like, is it a mental hospital, really? Yeah, well, well I was thinking more of the monastery <laughs> than the asylum. Nah, so I, I think that different teachers approach it differently. Some, some kind of incorporate this kind of therapeutic uh, kind of element especially through the arch i think there is a lot of commonalities there of working with yourself in the arch so uh, while some have a more say antagonistic idea about turning it into a therapy session because it's still about schooling it's still about you know improving your skills so going full-fledged therapy I don't know. It has its sides and also its risks. I think because it's teachers working there, it's not psychologists or you know people that are prepared to deal with depression or clinical states that are severe. So, and there is no affordances in the school to take care of really difficult uh, psychological problems. So I think I think there are teachers approaching it differently, but. Uh, there is definitely that dimension to it. Um, how are I mean? How are folk schools, folk high schools, doing? I mean, are they are they a flourishing area of education, or do people see seeing as a sort of anachronism or something, or, or are they viewed as a vitally, you know, a very important part of of Swedish life and education and recovering? We mentioned sort of re recovering the people who finished school and maybe didn't do would like to en enhance their skills are they seen as seen as successful and you mean among uh, policy makers uh, yeah policy makers uh, and swedish society i would i mean i don't think in general swedish society as a whole might not have like in all areas understood what the folk high schools are and what the tremendous heritage um they are in terms of possibilities for lifelong learning. And I think it's slightly underground <laughs> in terms of comparing it to vocational education or higher education and, and so on. Um, but that being said, uh, um, currently there is a lot of budget cuts and a lot of uh, difficulty of funding this sort of liberal arts programs and culture uh, and the folk high schools have gotten some budget cuts but it's not as bad as it is for instance with study associations study circles which is one of these other types of adult educational forms that is very important in sweden uh, so I, they have legitimacy and i think it's more that they do so many different things so it's really hard to showcase uh, i mean some of these folk high schools are the providing the best education you could get in terms of creative writing, jazz music, uh, becoming a professional uh, cartoonist, for instance. I mean, all these very odd things, you can become, the, the, they are really cutting edge uh, in some odd areas of the educational system. So 
they do all kinds of things. They are both for an elite and for you know recreation and for second chance education, which makes it hard to. What, so what is it? Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm 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 sold. I, I, if I I'd be signing up right now if I you know, if I could. <laughs> the, I mean, the, 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 the enemy of that sort of education in this country, uh, as I've watched in my career, is. I watched um, a music service. Uh, I lived in a town once where there was a very flourishing music service, lots of orchestras and evening classes and such, and budget cuts. You said you said that budget cuts, budget cuts, budget cuts. You can cut music, and only a minority seem to suffer or complain. And you can cut the budget to the schools' arts quicker than you can cut the budget to the laboratories and so on. And mm. th- and there's a trend also to v- for an instrumentalism. And I only recently our Prime Minister Rishi, Rishi Sunak said that you know he he would like all students to be studying mathematics all the way through, and he didn't mean it for the creativity of mathematics or its delightful you know, exp- expanding of the mind. What he meant was we need more people who are good at computers and business. Mm. So there was that, that sort of is it good for the economy? Can we afford it? And it, it would seem to me that in this country, folk schools would, if I pitched the idea, would be not not really and not really. We can't afford it, and I don't see how this is going to benefit the economy. No, but I mean, but I mean, uh, it's really an empirical question, right? So what if you would take all this away? What would happen to the economy? Do you take away the the chance for second chance education for those who didn't fit into the educational system as it is currently set up? You take away the possibility of re-entering the labor market by depriving people a new meaning in their life by devoting themselves to, say, arts. It's probably a really costly affair if you close this down because the cost per student is really low in these rural folk colleges compared to what they pay to vocational educational training or uh, or or higher vocational education. So, so it is something. I mean, not with. So it's, it's free. There's no fees, mm. but. Being able to afford the t- taking the time out of your life, it, or as it were, working class people can afford this. It's not just the, something of the of the middle class uh, yeah. people of. Definitely, so, every everyone could afford it. I mean, there's very low uh, cost even for being housed in these boarding schools. But there is this internal cleavage within this rosy folk high school family. You have the class divide running between these compensatory classes and the aesthetic art classes. So you also have, even though they meet in the same school, uh, they eat dinner in the same place perhaps, and they, in that way, is kind of uniquely grouping together social groups that wouldn't meet otherwise. They also have their internal uh, divides, so to say, between the elite and masses, between like, uh, because it's obviously a lot of social underpinnings in who chooses what, uh, who cu- who gets enrolled into yeah. what type of program and so on. Yeah. So the kind of students you're going to find doing the life drawing class is going to be a bit different to the ones who are doing the IT skills. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. They'll, they'll they'll just be they'll there for slightly different purposes. Exactly. And one, you would probably to... be able to guess once you're in that lunchroom who which which table does what type of class uh, i mean that's the structure of the, of these things are quite strong in terms of self selection yeah. and 
social, uh, you know, the legacy of social origin. Back, in, I mean, back in the nineteenth century, we talked a little, a little earlier about this build, building a sense of nation. But there's another theme, it seems to me, in adult education and, well, just in education really, and that is the de dealing with the problem of an industrial working class, a kind of proletariat. You know, how do you ensure that they are civilized so there's mm. a there's a mission a missionary to the working classes to sort yeah, of yeah, degree yeah. there and mm. is that i mean you mentioned immig immigration sweden mm. denmark britain the uk are are, are are evolving into much more multicultural societies so is that strand of let's establish who who we are as a country and let's make sure that we accept the rules are those are those there as well is it sort of enculturation kind of element to to, the, to this kind of education, mm. this is this is how you learn to behave in a well. I won't say civil, I mean, yeah, it, civil, civilized way. Uh, so I, <laughs> I, I do think there are those norms, and that's part of kind of the hidden curricula you talked yeah. about in the UK for a long time. Yes, <laughs> but uh, it's it's more clear perhaps when you look back, right? What you said about cultivation of of, of working class kids, like they had to be lifted up to understand the enormous rich and richness of Western classical music yes. or they shouldn't listen to jazz music. They should listen to you know, Beethoven or Mozart or whatever. Uh, that and also like the, the cultivation of how, you know, just the manners and the etiquettes and how to dress up, go to school and listen to your uh, principal and, and your teacher. I think that's that's very clearly the case and and, and fostering for also the utility of the welfare state. So they become instruments to you know you shouldn't be a radical socialist. You should be a reformistic socialists. You know believing in parliament, believing in deliberations in. Uh, how to do a meeting in a demo democratic manner and so on and so on. Um, today, I mean, that's the, the that is also, I think, the case. But I haven't not done such studies myself. But but uh, my colleagues who who do study migrants and their encounters with the folk high schools uh, raise these questions and and put those kinds of problems uh, to the table. Interesting. So, if if uh, someone coming to Sweden from from an, a recent immigrant into Sweden or recent immigrant in, into Denmark went to a folk high school, are they going to find it a very Swedish sort of place in a in a welcome in an unwelcoming sense? Would they say, "Well, this is this is very much for the people who think of themselves as Swedish"? Uh, no. So, if they would look around in their classroom, which if if they attend is more compensatory. Classes. So if they look for getting what corresponds to upper secondary school exam, then you know half of the classroom would probably be born outside of Sweden, and and so so it's they would really feel that way if they entered the visual arts class or jazz music class or something like that. Then they would perhaps feel like, why are there so few of me here? Or how am I supposed to be at ease with this environment? <laughs> because it's no clear structure to it. Just people wanting to jam together and learn things in this very open, explorative way. So that would 
perhaps cause a bit of confusion. But I think that when, when it comes to the second chance education in Falkar schools, then I think that, that that can also be the case that some of the migrants that come, they want to have a clear curricula, they want to have learning aims, they want to be tested on something. And then the Falkar schools might have another way of doing it, where more group work, more problem-based learning, more uh, there is no right and wrong, you just should, you know, get going with things and that might cause a bit confusion but a lot of people like it after a while after initial period of confusion maybe interesting yeah i mean anyone who has uh encountered people as, as i did in my teaching career quite a lot who, who recent immigrants to the country or children of immigrants to the country realize how we, how what an emphasis there is from their parents on self-improvement Mm, and yeah. and and a very and a very instrumental form of self-improvement as you say you will become a doctor you will yeah, become yeah. an optician you will become an optician <laughs> yeah you, you you won't be choosing the sociology class this term you'll be you'll be choosing the uh, the chemistry and the science uh, and, and quite naturally in a sense as well you, you want you know you want to fit in but you also want mm. to earn more money and be more successful for, uh, as a as an as a sort of um, economic provider for your family and so on Mm. which is a, a, nat a natural tendency. But then also there is folk high schools having, having, uh, having uh, set up uh, campuses inside urban areas, uh, impoverished urban areas. So then they have specific like uh, destinations to target people, uh, which, which, uh, which doesn't have upper secondary school exam or has to start from really basic levels of writing and reading and literacy and there you have more uh, perhaps they wouldn't even know what is the history of a focus school because it's just like basic training and it might not have this characteristic that I described earlier uh, because you have to start from a very uh, basic level too so it varies a lot, I think, is the baseline. Fascinating. And we're, we're almost coming to an end, so I've got a couple of couple of last questions for you, Eric. First of all, let me uh, commend you on your wonderful English. And <laughs> and and I, I said to my wife, I said, oh, well, I'm sure I'm sure Eric was speaking perfectly good, good English today. She said, well, of course, he's Swedish. She said, everyone speaks English <laughs> in Sweden. And I thought, well, I've, I've, I've rather taken that for granted. I didn't at the beginning say, OK, I, I can't speak a word of Swedish, so... I'm just assuming that you'll be fine. Is there a tension there between this sort of over this overwhelming? Uh, I'm guessing that in education, in folk schools, and so on, lots of students will say, "Well, I want to learn English as well as Swedish." Is there a is there any sort of tension there? Going back to the original idea that you know, let's preserve ourselves from, uh, from let's preserve ourselves from being German if you're Danish. Let's preserve the Swedish identity. Is there a sense in which the the as the British worry about Americanization, is there a sense of a sense of you know we we are losing something here? We're slipping into the uniform world of the Anglo. So I, I think I Americans. want to answer your question by changing the school to university and higher education. So within higher education and the university, I can really clearly feel that tension because that's uh, where we're working. There is. It's such a tremendous pressure to, to write in English and to orient yourself towards English-speaking audience, given that where, what position English has as kind of the new Latin or 
lingua franca yes, of yes. academia. So there you have a loss of vocabulary and words. So the concept of Bildung, for instance, there is no equivalent, no translation. So all what we've been talking about is folkbildning in Swedish. There is hardly any way of saying it, like Bildung to the folk. I mean, it's just lost in translation. Um, and I think there is a real clear kind of tension between those who want to insist on having Swedish as our go-to language within research and teaching, and those that are more perhaps uh, internationally oriented and, and want to make a case for extending, say, the research about folk schools or second chance education into a conversation which incorporates, you know, a lot of other countries and other, a lot of other places, which is obvious advantage of orienting yourself to English. Was there, was there a motivation in your uh, desire to find out more about folk schools that you wanted to find about, find out about, as it were, or research something or shed light on something that was very Swedish, very very unique to your own country. Yeah, so I think it mirrors Swedish society to a large extent, given that the folk schools are having this, they don't have a fixed curriculum. The national, uh, the state doesn't enforce a curricula upon the school and it's adult learners. So you have to be interested in something. That means that the folk schools always develops in kind of tandem or in relation to other some some kind of need that the state wants to encourage and cultivate or what people want to do after the 1960s they wanted to do music and arts and whatnot you know so it's sort of a lacmus paper of kind of zeitgeist the trends and the things transpiring in society and yes. because it's been around so long you can kind of through this one institution look at societal changes over the long durée, over the long course of action. And that so it's a, is very interesting to me. So it's a mechanism for a sort of microcosm of the bigger whole, to see the whole of Swedish society as it, as it, as it changes. So in the 19th century, you can see nation building and so on, and mm. socialist worries about the proletariat in, in the 20th century, something different, maybe exactly. as, it, as, it as it reflects those changes. Fascinating study. Must be wonderful. Uh, last question: <laughs> If if I if someone from Sweden thought, well, I'll I'll be an instructor in a folk high school, uh, is it do do you have to be a qualified teacher? And is there the pay structure competitive? Or would people say, well, I can I I do it as a sort of hobby, or is it? What is the status? Yeah, so you could be a full time teacher, and you often have a teacher training background either from the kind of normal steady state teacher program. And in Lean Shopping, we offer a specific teacher program for becoming a folk high school teacher. Uh, but because it also has these uh, courses where it's important to recruit people with specific skills in art or a vocational trait. Uh, so not all teachers have a professional certificate with them. So some might come as really good at an instrument or a specific music stronger or visual arts teachers being often themselves artists, mm. right? So because they need that uh, and then they work part-time as artists and part-time as teachers mm. so they can sustain a living while doing their art. Um, so I think that 
the 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 pay, <laughs> if you want to raise that question, is not super competitive in terms of if you compare them straight on with uh, upper secondary school teachers, or I think they would have a, a lesser pay in general. But the autonomy of their work is greater. So a lot of teachers choose to be teachers in four colleges and four high schools anyway, mm. because they have greater autonomy, because they have greater freedom, they sense the creativity and the pleasure of being in the folk college uh, means more than a and, slight pay raise. And you get to to stay, to live, to work in one of the, in somewhere, I'm imagining somewhere overlooking a fjord or something. I'm <laughs> <laughs> you, could, you could look for that school. Yeah. I, do, you, do you have a particular folk school that you think is the one, the most, the most attractive to work in or? Uh -huh. No, I, I mean, I'm, I'm sometimes envious of the ones working in folk high schools, but for now I haven't really uh, <laughs> been imagining myself as a teacher there. But my, maybe that's a retirement plan. Well, yeah, absolutely. I've been imagining myself as one as we've been talking. Well, Eric Nylander, thank you so much for that. I've, I've learned a lot, actually. I've learned a lot not only preparing for this interview, but um, uh, talking to you. So... Thank you very much for the opportunity for this window on, on something I didn't know much about. And I hope our audience, I'm sure they have, will have enjoyed it. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you so much, John. And that brings to an end this week's episode of the Friday Morning Break with John Gibbs. And my guest this week, Professor Eric Nylander of Linköping University in Sweden. And we were discussing the folk high schools. If you've enjoyed this discussion, you can find it on a podcast on Spotify or on the Teachers Talk Radio website and many other platforms. Thank you for listening. Listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.